listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. We're in Luke chapter 4 this morning, and if you don't have a a Luke scripture journal, let me encourage you to get one of those before you leave, and if you can't find one in a seat or on a table around here, see me, we've got plenty of these available, they're free, it gives you an opportunity to sort of read along and study along and uh, make notes, um, your thoughts about the text, how it's impacting your life, and so the Luke scripture journal. We're in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in it for a few weeks now, not too long. We're at Luke chapter 4, and um, what's happening in the text is that Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus. Luke wants to uh, see Theophilus convinced of who the Christ is, and so Luke tells us that he's done his research, and Luke has compiled this document, and he's presented it to Theophilus along with um, the book of Acts. Luke is the author of both of those. And what we've seen so far in Luke chapters 1 and 2 is we see an introduction to the life of Jesus Christ. And Luke takes the time painstakingly to go back and uh, give us people in history that we can trace down and dates. And there is tremendous clarity as he communicates about who Jesus is. Is. So the first two chapters, the life of Jesus Christ, kind of parallel along with John the Baptist. So we, we re- remember seeing Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary. And then when we get to chapter 2, we see Simeon in the temple and Anna in the temple. We see the shepherds in the field. And we see the good news spreading of the birth of our Lord. So we look at the life of Christ in chapters 2 and 3, or chapters 1 and 2. And then when we come to chapters 3 and 4, we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, an introduction to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And last week, we spent time looking at John the Baptist. Most of our time was spent on John the Baptist, his ministry, how the Lord raised him up. And at the end of the John the Baptist narrative, we see Jesus being baptized, and then it gave Jesus his genealogy. We didn't read that. But when we come to chapter 4 today, we see this message that gives us this recurring theme of Jesus' ministry um, that's going to be throughout the gospel. Gospel of Luke. And that recurring theme that we're going to see, we're going to see it in this text and we're going to see it in the text that follow, is we're going to see the, the power of Jesus Christ, number one. Secondly, we're going to see the preaching of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we're going to see the purpose of Jesus Christ. And, and the, the power text is one that's very popular because it deals primarily with the temptation of Jesus. So we're going to take a few minutes to try to deal with the temptation of of Jesus this morning. And so we're looking at Luke chapter 4. We're going to try to cover the whole chapter in the next uh, 40 or so minutes that we have together. I want to begin reading in verse 1. I want to read the first section, then talk about it for a few minutes, and then the second section, and talk about it for a few minutes, and then the final three verses, and, and mention them as we're going through the text. The first thing we see, and I want you to notice this in this text, Luke wants to con- convince Theophilus that Jesus Christ has power over Satan, that Jesus Christ has power over stagnant religious people, that Jesus Christ has power over demonic forces, that Jesus Christ has power over sickness, that Jesus Christ has power over sin and can save people from their sin. Verse 1 of chapter 4, 
And Jesus, full of the Holy Ghost, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are, or since you are, the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Verse 7, If you then will worship me, it will, be, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And now Satan's quoting, quoting Scripture. He's good at it. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We see his power. We see the power of Jesus Christ. We're going to see it further in the text, but I want to deal with this text primarily, and we're going to see Jesus' power over Satan. And what we're going to see in this text is a couple of things. Number one, Jesus succeeded where Adam failed because Adam faced temptation from Satan in the garden and yielded to Satan's temptation. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed in the wilderness, and they gave in to temptation. Our Lord has succeeded when faced with unbearable temptation. He was full of the Spirit. The Spirit has led him into the wilderness. It, it is one of the most uh, desolate places that anyone could ever imagine, and he's out there for 40 days. And the text would indicate that he's tempted for all 40 days. He wasn't out there 40 days, and at the end of 40 days, Satan comes and just tempts him. But he's now going to throw at him these three final temptations, the best that he's got. He's going to throw the kitchen sink at Jesus with these three final temptations. And we see also, we need to make note of this because we're going to be able to see him operating prominently in the text. And this is the introduction of Satan into the text as we begin to read it. And Satan is not a pleasant fellow. Um, think of the names that he has been given. He is a slanderer. He is an accuser. He's an adversary. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a dragon. He's a snake. He's an accuser. He's a tempter. He's a roaring lion. He's the god of this world. He is the evil one. He, he's not the kind of person that you need coming to you to try to convince you to do what he wants you to do. Him trying to convince you or tempt you is not going to end up well for you, although his temptations are powerful and enticing. And so he comes to our Lord. He comes to Jesus. And in all of these temptations, he wants Jesus to abandon his dependence upon God. He's coming to Jesus and saying, don't trust God. Take matters into your own hands. 
There's several ways of looking at the temptations. One, one writer said that Satan was coming to Jesus and saying, gratify yourself or obey God's word, exalt yourself or worship God, glorify yourself or surrender to God's plan. Another writer said that, that Satan was tempting Christ to, get, to doubt God's love because we know in chapter 3 he told the son, the father told the son, you are my beloved son, but how could a father who loves his son let his son go, go through what Jesus has gone through? Doubt God's love. God doesn't really love you. He tempted Christ to doubt God's love. He tempted Christ to doubt God's plan. He tempted Christ not to trust God, but to trust him if you did presumptuously based on God's performance once you tested him. But I want us to look at it a little differently. It's all from the text. I want you to look at in the text this morning what Satan tried to get Jesus to focus on. And I want you to conclude from the text what Jesus ultimately put his faith in. And I want you to know that if Satan comes to you, he's going to come to you, and he's going to try to get you to focus on the same things. And the only way out of the temptation is to do what Jesus did when temptation faced him. And he was full of the Spirit. He's in the wilderness. These are real temptations. These are powerful temptations. Jesus has acute hunger. In verses 3 and 4, Satan comes to Jesus and he says, focus on your need. Think about his rationale. Here he's saying to the Son of God, you have a legitimate need. You have acute hunger. It is a genuine need that you have. The Father that says he loves you has abandoned you. The Father has forsaken you. The Father is not taking action to respond to your acute need. God has called you his beloved Son, yet he has left you to find yourself with no provision. Here's his rationale, though. You are the Son of God. Satan knows Jesus Christ well. They probably have interacted at some point in time before in eternity past. And he's telling Jesus, rather than wait on the Father, why don't you take matters into your own hands and use your power to meet your own need? Use your power to meet your own need. You are powerful enough. You can act independently of the Father, and you need to act where the Father has failed you. Jesus, though, goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the book of Deuteronomy. He goes to, to a, a passage that deals with the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, not trusting God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a fascinating um, verse that Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy 8.3. And I'm going to read the whole verse because Jesus didn't quote the whole verse, but uh, it says, and he humbled you and let you hunger. This is God to Israel. God humbled you and God let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of of the Lord. That was Jesus' answer to him. Satan, don't you know, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, don't you know that, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Don't you know that, that I'm not going to take matters into my own hands, but I'm going to trust not only the bread that God is going to supply, but I'm going to trust the God that supplies the bread? Here's what the Deuteronomy text is saying, and here's what Jesus is saying to Satan. It is not manna that sustains Israel, but what stands behind the manna. It is not manna that sustains Israel, but what stands behind 
the manna? What is it that stands behind the manna? It's God's daily decision to provide the manna. If God decides to provide it, good, we'll take it. If God decides not to provide it, good, we'll trust him. What stands behind provision is God's daily decision, God's day-by-day decision to give the manna. In fact, doesn't that sound familiar? Give us this day our daily bread. The focus isn't the bread. The focus is the God who makes the decision to give us the bread. That's the focal point. It's not about the bread, but it's about the God behind the bread. One commentator said, Sustenance does not depend on bread but on the will of God and the Word of God that decides to give the bread. Did you hear that? Life is not about getting bread. Life is about trusting God who speaks and who, who wills and say, I'm going to put, this is betting terminology, uh, I'm not really going to put my money on God. But he said, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to trust you, Satan. I'm going to trust God's word. I'm not going to trust you, Satan. Don't make impulsive decisions based on real need. Don't make impulsive decisions based on real need. Wait. That's what he's saying. Wait. Wait in the wilderness to see what God will do. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to wait in the wilderness. And and. Uh, again, this is not my statement. This is someone else's uh, statement, and my brain is not fully functioning right now. Um, and I wrote down the guy's initials, and uh, I, I can't remember his name. So uh, come up and see me later. I'll be glad to share it with you. I'm not trying to um, plagiarize somebody. I'm quoting uh, Dale Ralph Davis. That's who it is. Here's what he said. He said, Faith prefers to wait for God than to deify its own need. Faith prefers to wait for God than to deify its own need. Satan comes and tempts us and says, you've got a great need. Deify the need, but it is God who meets the need. So why don't you trust God instead of thinking that I've got to have this, and if I don't have this, my life isn't complete. Your life can be complete without manna, but your life cannot be complete without God. Your life can be complete without bread, but your life cannot be complete without God. Satan says, focus on your need. But Jesus says, faith prefers to wait for God than to deify its own need. The second thing is this, and we see it in verses 5 to 8. Jesus comes, or Satan comes to Jesus again, and he, and he tells them, if you look at, at verse number 5 of, of chapter 4, he says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. All authority has been given to me, and it's my right to give these to you, Jesus. Satan basically is telling Jesus, focus on immediate gratification. Jesus has already been promised the kingdoms. In fact, the kingdoms already belong to Jesus. Satan is just mismanaging them for a while until Jesus is recognized as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's going to ascend to the Father. All of these things are his. But Satan is coming and saying, why don't you take a shortcut why don't you take a shortcut to these things? Why don't you bypass the cross? 
Why don't you bypass the plan of God? Why don't you listen to my plan? I can give you the same thing that God is offering you, except it's going to be a whole lot easier if you'll listen to me. But the problem is Jesus at his baptism has already taken a stand in our place for our sin, and that commits him to the plan of the Father moving forward. There is no shortcut. There is no way out. Jesus was committed to the path of long obedience. Suffering must precede glory. Satan says you can have it now. You don't need to wait for God's hand. You don't need to wait for God's plan. You can have it now. All you have to do is worship me. That's all you have to do. Just bow down and worship me. I'm going to give you all this, and this is the price tag. This is all you got to do. You have to worship me. Look at what I can give you and worship me. Listen carefully. All temptation is ultimately to worship Satan. Every temptation you face has putting him in the place of God as its silver lining. Every time you're tempted, Satan says, reject God, worship me. Reject God's plan, worship me. I want you to think about temptation and worshiping Satan. Most of you here would say, I would never worship Satan. But what do you do when you yield to temptation? You're saying that Jesus is not enough. You're saying that God's provision is not enough. You're saying that Satan's plan is better than God's plan. Worshiping Satan is never a singular act, and it's never worth what he promises in return. You don't get tempted by Satan. You bow down and worship Satan to get what Satan promises you and think that that was a singular act and it would never impact you or your life again. Now, that's what he sells us as a bill of goods. Worshiping Satan is never a singular act and it's never worth what he promises in return. And so Jesus responds, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 13. When Satan says, gratify yourself now, seek immediate gratification, Jesus goes immediately back to the Old Testament where uh, Israel failed in the wilderness. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter, um, what did I say? 6, verse 13. Thank you. He said, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. No other, no other gods are to be before us as God's people. Verse, yeah, I, I read the verse right. Worshiping, and here's what, here's what Jesus is saying, worshiping the true God matters more than having the whole world. Worshiping the true God matters more than having the whole world. The point of life and, and the psalmist says in, in Psalm 30, verse 9, he, he appeals to God and he says, God, how will anybody worship you? How will I worship you if I am dead? What is the psalmist saying? He's saying that the point of life is to worship God. Don't let the glitter and the glitz and the pleasure and all of the stimulation of temptation get to you. You were not made to worship Satan. You were not made to yield to temptation. You were made to worship God. The third thing we see in verses 9 to 13, um, 
Satan comes and says, focus on your needs. Satan comes and says, focus on immediate gratification. Satan comes and says, focus on recurring proof. Focus on recurring proof. Look at, look at Luke chapter 4 again, if you will. Focus on recurring proof. In other words, what is he saying? We, once we go down this path, and some people call it faith, we, we are constantly in need for God to prove himself. We're constantly in need for God to prove that he's trustworthy. God, don't let me down. God, can I trust you again? God, will you prove yourself? He says, don't test God. To test God, listen, is, is to give God a test and see if he can pass it. That's what it means to test God. I'm going to give God a test, and I'm, I'm going to see if God is going to pass the test. And Satan has come to, to Jesus, and he said, look, go up to the, the, the pinnacle of the temple, and why don't you jump off, and let's see if God's going to catch you. He said he would. His word said he would. He's going to protect you. Don't you trust God? Go ahead and test God. Make God give you a proof that he could and should be trusted. Will God come and take care of you? Psalm 91 says that he will if you really trust him. Why don't you test him? And, and so Satan is coming at Jesus. Hey, Jesus, do you really believe the Bible? Do you really believe the word of God? Then, then prove that you trust God by putting God to the test and see if God is trustworthy. Listen, faith is not pushing God to prove his care through the dramatic or the sensational. Faith is not pushing God to prove his care through the dramatic or the sensational. And so Satan comes and says, focus on recurring proof. And, and Jesus' response is, faith prefers to trust God than to test God. Pushing God to prove himself is not evidence of faith. Listen, pushing God to prove himself is not evidence of faith. Pushing God to prove himself is evidence of a lack of faith. Jesus said, I am not going to respond to this temptation. How are you handling temptation? Are you fighting temptation? Are you fleeing temptation? Are you resisting temptation? Are you putting on the full armor of God? Or have you given in to Satan's convincing appeal, which ultimately at its core says, come and worship me? How are you responding to temptation? I love the end of the passage, and I just want to look at it briefly. Jesus is facing temptation, and the temptation is real, and it's powerful. Jesus is in a weakened physical state. He's probably in a weakened emotional state. He's probably in a weakened mental state. Thank God he's not in a weakened uh, spiritual state. The Spirit is there with him, even in the depth of his weakness. The temptations are real. They can meet real needs. Satan's arguments are obviously compelling because we have all in this room been victims of his arguments. Haven't we? Haven't we? I know I have. How are you handling temptation? But here's what I want you to see in Jesus. Jesus is dealing with temptation, but he comes to the end uh, of chapter 4, and, and he, he says this, and I, I love this, chapter 4, verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
We must have a compelling must that is of greater value than Satan's temptation. We must have a compelling must that is of greater value than Satan's temptation. There must be something better than Satan's temptation. There must be a must, a must. I must do this that, that, that insulates our life because there is something greater than all that Satan, the really good things, the really comforting things, the really powerful things, the really transformational things that Satan is offering. Jesus said, no, I can't take any of them because there is this compulsion, there is this must that is more important, that is greater than Satan's temptation. We need to realize that we don't see the end of the story when Satan invites us into the journey of temptation. We don't see the end of the story when Satan invites us into the journey of temptation. Listen carefully. Our response, listen carefully, our response to temptation will shape our lives forever. Do you hear me? If you've ever been tempted and you've ever fallen for it, it is forever lodged in your mind. And you and I can go back to crossroads in our life when we should have resisted temptation, but we gave into it. And Satan was just like, hey, it ain't a big deal, man. I'll give it all to you. Just bow and just, just all, all you, look, look, all you got to do is bow down and worship me. I can have all of this if I just bow down and worship you. That's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. We, we never truly understand how much our response to Satan's temptation shapes the rest of our life. And so we see Jesus' power over Satan. And I'll hasten through the rest of Jesus' power. But secondly, we see Jesus' power over spiritual stagnation. If you'll, if you'll go down uh, to the next section, um, we see a transitional statement in verse 13 of Luke chapter 4. Um, or verse 14, I'm sorry. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by them all. He goes to Nazareth. He goes to Capernaum. He goes to uh, Peter's house for uh, Sabbath day lunch. Then after the Sabbath is over, he goes out and he begins to heal people and cast out demons. And so this is essentially the preaching ministry of Jesus. But I want you to understand that Jesus in Nazareth is dealing with some people that are spiritually stagnant. He, he goes and he reads Isaiah 61. He goes into the temple, and I'll say more about that in just a minute. When he got through reading in, in the temple, everybody's like, there were probably people in the temple listening to Isaiah 61. Just like, oh, you know, just waving, worshiping, worshiping, worshiping. Oh, I love that. I love that verse. I love that chapter. That is an amazing, that is an amazing passage, my favorite passage. I memorize that. It's my life passage. Jesus rolls up the scroll. He sits down. And he says, today, this is being fulfilled. They went from, oh, to, and you could have heard a denarii denar drop in the synagogue. And then he begins to deal with these people. These folks are in the synagogue. They're in church every week. They know Isaiah. They tithe. They obey the law. 
They're really, really, really good people. But Jesus goes and gives him these passages about Elijah and Elisha. Why does he do that? Because one of the most stagnant, spiritually stagnant periods in the history of Israel was under two of the most prolific prophets that we read about in the Bible, Elijah and Elisha. And here's what Jesus tells them. He said, Elijah and Elisha bypassed Israel and went over into pagan lands to help a pagan widow who didn't have food when there were a ton of widows in Israel that didn't have food and help. And Elisha went and helped a pagan general in Syria who had leprosy when there were plenty of lepers in Israel. Why? Because Israel was so spiritually stagnant. So spiritually stagnant. Jesus has power over spiritual stagnation. And it appears that when he goes and he presents himself and he's not responded to, that he'll just move to the next town. We see that happening over and over and over again. In fact, here in Nazareth, and we'll read it in the text in a minute, they were just telling Jesus, hey, Jesus, why don't you do what you did in Capernaum? Because word spread. Capernaum was his headquarters. Nazareth was his hometown. Word spread all around what Jesus had done in Capernaum. Great things had happened. They're like, hey, why don't you prove yourself? Why don't you prove yourself to us? They're testing him. And so we see Jesus in his power over spiritual stagnation. We also see when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Um, that's, that's miraculous in and of itself that a man would want his mother-in-law healed. Amen. <laughs> and she's got a fever, and the fever was probably um, uh, uh, of the kind that would kill you. There was some kind of infection that she had. It was serious. Luke, the physician, understood what was wrong with her. And Jesus goes and stands over her and speaks to her, and she is healed. And she is healed so completely that she gets up and fixes lunch for everybody because that's probably what she did after the Sabbath was, or after the meeting in the synagogue was over. And she is preparing the meal for family. Jesus has power over sickness. We're going to see also in the text that Jesus has power over spirits as he's preaching in Capernaum and a man stands up and says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? And Jesus says, uh, you know, I'm going to cast this demon out. And the man's using this terminology called us. Basically, demons would destroy the host, but Jesus was able to remove the demon from the host, from the man, and the man was saved. And then we see clearly that Jesus has power over sin to deliver sinners. That's what Isaiah 61 tells us. So Luke wants Theophilus to look at this power and say that this must be the Son of God. He has power. Secondly, we see his preaching, and I want to pick up in verse 14, or let me go, go ahead and go to verse 16. I already read verse 14. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom or his habit, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He'd probably been to that synagogue many times. There were probably hundreds of synagogues. Wherever you could find 10 men that could meet together, you could have an official synagogue. They would go to the synagogue and uh, they would have prayer. Someone would take the Pentateuch and read from the Pentateuch. Someone would take the prophets and read from the prophets. Then someone, after the prophet was read, someone would expound, would sit down and then expound on that. And this is, what, this is what Jesus did in the text here. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he reads Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Isaiah 61 is one of over 2,000 passages in the Old Testament that point to the Redeemer, that point to Christ, that point to Messiah. And Jesus is standing up and saying that I am the one, look at verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The beginning of the fulfillment of the scripture is right now, this moment. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, hey, I believe what you said. I believe that text. I just don't believe it's about you. I just don't believe it's about you, Jesus. Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me, Jesus speaking, this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Show us some miracles. Show us some proof. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus is basically saying, This ministry in Isaiah 61 is beginning now, and this is the favorable year of the Lord. This is the year of Jubilee. This is the year when debts are forgiven. This is the year when land is returned. This is the favorable year of the Lord. But he says, no prophet is acceptable or favorable in his hometown. It is the favorable year of the Lord, but the one who has brought this message of God's favor through his servant, the Messiah, is not acceptable to you. It was a rejection of Jesus Christ. But in truth, I tell you, and he goes into this, this, this Old Testament narrative about Elisha and Elijah. I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and great famine came over the land. And Elijah sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow in Baal country. Paganism. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Listen to this. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. These holy spiritual people who were doing everything they thought they were supposed to do are now angry at the very messenger of God who comes proclaiming good news. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, and that is going to happen Ultimately, to Jesus, he's going to be taken and crucified, but his time is not now. And Jesus passed through their midst, and he went, he went away. Here's the pattern, though. Jesus going and preaching. People respond to his preaching. Jesus preaches again, and people respond to his preaching. We see that four-step process. We see the same thing happening in, um, in Capernaum. Isaiah 61 is about spiritual people. Now, Jesus does some physical things. Let me, let me just cause you to rest assured this morning that Isaiah 61 is not about social justice. Is there anything wrong with true social justice when we want to help people and serve people? We should constantly be doing this. But this, this is about Messiah coming 
and, and he's, he's anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's proclaiming good news to the spiritually poor. He's sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. It, is, it, would be so, it would be so wrong to go let people out of prison, but not let them out of their bondage to sin and be set free from Satan, who is the prince and power of the air. He's speaking in spiritual terms of his ministry and recovering of sight to the blind. People who were spiritually blind now see and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's talking about sins being forgiven. James Edwards says, Moderns are more often impressed by ministries of compassion and presence than by teaching and preaching. But this preaching was the activity that was at the core of Jesus' ministry. Let us not miss that. Let us not miss that. Jesus is preaching, and this was the core of his ministry. Their response was, aren't you one of us? Familiarity does breed contempt. They were cynical. They rejected him. And then he gives them the message from 1 Kings 17 about Elijah and 2 Kings chapter 5 about uh, Elisha and addressing the spiritual stagnation. He's basically saying God sent two of his greatest prophets to you, and you didn't hear them then, and you aren't listening to me now. They responded with contempt. They responded with contempt. Contempt is a whole different subject. I'd love to talk about it more. Whenever shame is touched, contempt comes out. I'll say this about contempt. You can feel it when it comes out of you. And everybody in this room has experienced contempt coming out of them. Somebody, somebody makes you feel less than. Somebody offends you. Somebody says something to put you down. Somebody touches a place of shame in your heart. And the first reaction is to come back with contempt. That's where arguments start, with contempt. And I know what it feels like for contempt to come out of me, and I know what it feels like for contempt to come at me. Contempt is not just words, but it's a spirit. It's an attitude. It's an energy. And if we look closely, we can almost see it. It's a powerful, gut-wrenching force. They didn't like what Jesus said. They didn't like what he was insinuating. They didn't like the fact that Jesus took the word of God and clearly identified their problem and their response was not one of worship but contempt. I would encourage you, one thing that, uh, that I've had the privilege of doing is sitting around with some men and talking about just the whole power of contempt in our lives and being aware of it. These folks came at Jesus with contempt. One writer called it church rage. He is absolutely right. <laughs> He's absolutely right. What should we do, guys? Kill him. Kill him. Then he goes to Capernaum. A whole different setting in Capernaum. We see his message. I don't know what his message was. But whatever his message was, and it may have been Isaiah 61 again, when he went to the synagogue, they were astonished. They said his words have authority. 
They were used to the scribes coming and teaching from tradition, and Jesus comes and he teaches from the text. And when Jesus is preaching in the text, in fact, if you will, let's look at verse 31 now. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. His word, his logos, possessed authority. And, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. The unclean demon is compared to the Holy One of God. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why are you bothering us, Jesus of Nazareth? They understood the power that Jesus had. Isn't it interesting that you can go to a synagogue that's set up and probably says God lives here and the Son of God walks in and proclaims the Word of God from Isaiah 61 and says this is fulfilled in your presence and they want to kill him, but he now is proclaiming and there's a demon in the audience and the demon responds recognizing his authority and power. What have I to do with you, Jesus. Why are you bothering me, Jesus? The story, the narrative goes on. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. That's a statement of truth, by the way, not a statement of faith. It is, it is, it is, possible to speak truth about Jesus but not have faith in Jesus. A lot of people are satisfied when somebody speaks truth about Jesus or our kids speak truth about Jesus, but it's not enough to speak truth about, about, about Jesus. He's acknowledging Jesus is the Holy One of God. Uh, one writer said, wherever there is theology, there is always demonology. Demons are always going to be working where God's word is being proclaimed. Thir verse 35, there's the response to Jesus preaching. Jesus is speaking again, but Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. That was miraculous. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? Not what is this healing. What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out and reports about him went out into every place in, and in the surrounding region about his word. Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. He's writing to a Greek audience. And when, when there was a, an, a great figure, they attached to tremendous significance to the spoken word of that individual. And he's saying, Jesus is great. Jesus is the Son of God. And there is great power in his word. They moved over to Peter's house. If you will go to verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. I mean, if she doesn't get up, who's going to fix lunch? Amen. <laughs> and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. Complete healing. What we see happening here in the ministry of Jesus as we consider Luke chapter 4, an introduction to the ministry of Jesus, is Jesus is going to Nazareth, and you see his response there. Jesus now goes to Capernaum, and you see a different response. But Jesus leaves Capernaum where he dealt with this one person with a demon, and now he goes into this house where this lady is sick, and so he shows his power over sickness. But next we're going to see Jesus going after the Sabbath is ended, and many people coming out and receiving his ministry and his 
power. He's establishing the, the preaching ministry of Jesus and the power of Jesus. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick, all those, all those, every one of them who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. I don't know that there was any magic in him laying his hands other than his hands were the hands of the Son of God, but it shows his connection to people, and, and it shows his compassion for people. And the demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God, and he rebuked them and would not allow, not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And so we see Jesus and his preaching ministry and the expansion of his ministry. The final thing I want you to see very briefly in the last section, verses 42 to 44, is Jesus' purpose. Let's look at the, the verses together. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him for, from leaving. We know Jesus was in a desolate place from other passages, and he's praying. Jesus has gone to pray. The people come to plead. They don't want Jesus to leave. The people in Nazareth wanted him to leave. There are instances, and I think it's in Mark chapter 5 or chapter 6, I think it's Mark chapter 6, where Jesus goes and there's a guy named Legion. He's filled with demons and he's broken chains and he's got scars all over his body. And Jesus walks in and's like, what's your name? And he casts the demons out of him. But the demons are like, well, what are you going to do with us? Don't, don't destroy us. Just throw us into these swine. He throws them into these swine. There's a good number of swine. They run down a steep place into the Sea of Galilee and they all drowned. Right? You know that story. The, the, the pig owners came out, and they're like, what in the world has happened? Jesus, why don't you leave? Why don't you leave? Why? Why do they want Jesus to leave? I mean, Jesus is just destroying the economy. They were more concerned about a bunch of pigs than they were about a human being and the demons leaving him. And so, so Jesus comes and... And he, he's got his, his purpose, but he can't stay. He's not welcomed in some places. He's welcomed in other places. But then notice what he says. And Jesus states his purpose several times in, in the Gospels. He said, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God into other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Um. I would just statement to every believer here, listen to me carefully, the, the, the reality of the kingdom demands the urgency of our ministry. The reality of the kingdom demands the urgency of our mission. If the kingdom is real and you are in the kingdom, then there should be this urgency in your heart and in your life that says, I must, I must I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus, when he says, I must, he's saying, there is this undeniable, unalterable, unquenchable compulsion that guides my life in marriage counseling to young, dumb people sit in front of you. And I always tell them, have agreed-upon goals. Have agreed-upon goals. Establish an objective standard to say this, these are the goals we're pursuing. 
You agree these are the goals? You, these, let's, are we going to agree on these goals? Let's have agreed-upon goals. That way, if, if your agreed-upon goal is to have a million dollars in the bank by the time you're 30, but you, you know, the, 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 the husband can't stop going on hunting trips and buying guns, and the wife can't stop going to Tanger and buying dresses, then you go back to the agreed-upon goals to say, now, where are we headed here? Where are we headed here? Right? What are we trying to do? And Jesus is saying, temptation's coming at me, but, but I've got this mission that I can't get away from. There's some things that I must do. There's some things that I must do. There's some things that I am committed to. And it is these, these musts in our life that dictate who we are. Jesus is like, I can't trifle with temptation. I, I was not born or, or born again to constantly find myself yielding to temptation and missing the mission. I must, I must. He said, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the term gospel is attached to a lot of things. We see the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, the gospel of glory, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of peace, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. What is the, the gospel? It's the message of God regarding the work of Christ. So I must preach the message of God regarding the work of Christ. But he calls it the, the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? kingdom has a king. But he's not only a king, he's a prophet. He's a prophet who speaks truth. Jesus Christ is a prophet who speaks truth. He's over this kingdom. He is always going to speak truth to his people. He's not like these people that we put up as kings of America. None of them speak the truth. Nobody speaks the truth. There is a, there is a kingdom that has a king who always speaks the truth. He's a prophet. Not only is he a prophet, but he's a priest. There is a kingdom that has a priest who stands before God and represents his people so that God in his wrath and fury would not pour that wrath and fury out on us as sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, but that priest, when we're in that kingdom, stands before God and represents us as our advocate. And in fact, this priest in this kingdom not only offers sacrifice for us, but this priest in this kingdom became the sacrificial offering for us. Jesus Christ died for our sin in our place. And that's our king. And Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. He rules and he reigns, but he is the most benevolent. He is the most loving. He is the most kind. He is the most generous. He's not coming at his people with constant taxation, saying, I'm going to tax you and I'm going to wear you out and I'm going to use you so that, so that it can be all about me. Jesus invites us into his kingdom, and this king who rules this kingdom says, you are going to be joint heirs with me. That's a good king. That's a good king. And so he says, I'm preaching the, the good news of this kingdom. The kingdom, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is the place where God rules, and it is the place where God saves. Our prophet, our priest, our king, he rules and he saves. The place where God rules and the place where God saves. The kingdom is the realm of the 
redeemed. The kingdom is, is made up of those who've experienced the salvation of the king and are in his kingdom. And if I had time, there are a tons, ton of scriptures to support that from the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you are redeemed, you are in the kingdom. And if you want to be in the kingdom, you must be redeemed. Somebody gave this to me yesterday. Friday, actually. It's a, it's a shot. It's an immunity shot, right? Does anybody take immunity shots? I take them. It's got a bunch of turmeric. It's got ginger. It's got... Um, what else has it got? It's got oil of oregano. And when I drank it, it tasted like they went to the fish market and got some of the ice that they had the fish on and put it in it too. Okay, that's what it tasted like. And it was just one of those tastes that just went your tongue, your mouth, your esophagus, your stomach, your small intestine. I mean, you just felt it all the way through your body. I mean, it just, for about an hour. But I picked up this bottle, and it is, it is immortal. It is immortal immunity. Immortal immunity. And on the side, it says, live forever. <laughs> live forever. You know, uh, there have been a lot of promises made about what it takes to live forever. A lot of promises made. But the only way you live forever is if you're in the kingdom. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Nobody gets into the kingdom except through Jesus. And Jesus said, I must go everywhere I can in the short time that I've got and tell everybody about the kingdom and the redeemed are going to come into the kingdom. And if you go to Luke chapter 24 and verse number 44, you can see that Jesus is telling those before he ascends that are in the kingdom, those who are redeemed, he's saying, hey, those of you that are redeemed need to be hanging out with those who are redeemed, and those of you who are redeemed should be going to the unredeemed to tell them about the kingdom. As I close, who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he just a carpenter from Nazareth? Or is he the fulfillment of Isaiah 61? Who is he to you? And then who are you? Are you Nazareth? Are you Nazareth? Are you offended? Are you offended that there is one who has come and he is God in flesh? Does that offend you? Nazareth was offended. Are you... Capernaum. Nazareth was filled with contempt. Capernaum was amazed and astonished. Are you constantly believing the lies of Satan and falling into temptation? Because there's not a must that drives your life. The folks in Nazareth had to decide who they were, and they decided who they were. And when we decide who we are, then we decide who Jesus is. They decided Jesus was just a carpenter's son because they were in the synagogue and they were dotting every I and crossing every T and their spirituality far exceeded anybody that they were so familiar with and they were going to listen to his message.
Finally, how do you respond? Who is Jesus Christ? Who are you? A hearer or rejecter? And then finally, how do you respond to temptation? Temptation, it comes in various forms. It is profoundly convincing. Profoundly convincing. Nothing will shape your life in any greater way than your response to temptation. I would challenge you to think about this temptation that Jesus faced and the temptation that you faced. And, and then I'll close with this. Come into the kingdom. There are a lot of signs that say eternal life this way, but there is only one kingdom, and Jesus is the king, and he's the only way into the kingdom. Are you in the kingdom this morning? Are you redeemed? Are you telling the unredeemed about the Redeemer and inviting them into his kingdom?